time for Arrested DevOps, a high-level, bi-weekly panel discussion of DevOps concepts, giving you a tantalizing taste of the basic technologies and ideas of DevOps to entice you to try more. Here are your hosts, Matt Stratton and Trevor Hess. Welcome to Arrested DevOps, Episode 9, Fast and Furious, Configuration Drift. I'm your co-host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter. And I'm your co-host, Trevor Hess, at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter. This episode of Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, helping businesses realize true agility through DevOps and cloud-enabled innovation. Tonight on Arrested DevOps, we're going to be talking about configuration management. Exactly. So joining us today, we have uh, Sean O'Mara of Chef. So, Sean, what's your favorite food-related pun with regards to Chef Tools? Food-related pun. Um, <laughs> kind of like uh, the, the, there's a new tool that came around recently called Mies, M-E-E-Z. Uh, it generates like a cookbook skeleton for you. It's a, it's a pun on uh, mise en place, uh, which is like what line cooks actually do to prep their stations before they actually get to work. It's like, oh, here's a pile of onions, here's a pile of whatever. Um, so I like that one. And we have Chris Weber of Demand Media. So, Chris, as a certified puppet master, do you prefer marionettes or paper bag puppets? Definitely paper bag puppets. <laughs> and finally, we have Steve Morawski of Stack Exchange. And, uh, Steve, uh, what do you find to be more useful when configuring Windows servers, PowerShell or uh, a firearm? I, I well, So that depends. Uh, I used to work for a police department, and the... Uh, and, and the cops there, whenever the computers weren't functioning, they'd always offer to shoot it. So <laughs> that always made it difficult for uh, to return to get stuff warranty work done on this on the thing. So Panasonic Toughbooks were supposed to be able to take a shot, but I never wanted to put that through the paces. So I'll stick with PowerShell. Stick with PowerShell. Cool. So tonight we're going to be talking about configuration management. For me, I, I look at it as basically configuration management. Is, is different than necessarily software configuration management when we're talking about things like version control in some ways. But ultimately, to me, it's creating a predictable and what I like to call kind of a trusted target, which is to say we know what our systems look like. We're defining what they should look like and letting them be as much as possible self-managed. And we're, we're just, like I said, I really like the term trusted target because when we look at how we do things like software deployment, it's really hard to automate deploying software in a in a safe way if you don't know what the systems look like that you're sending them to. So I kind of take a different approach when I talk with people about it, especially in terms of the way Puppet's uh, DSL is, is written. I really describe it in terms of configuration management to me is executable documentation uh, that keeps reinforcing itself. So we, we take the this uh, this module that has an exact layout of what supposed that system's supposed to look like, and it's well documented as what it's supposed to look like. So that that's kind of the angle I usually take with people as far as uh, it's executable documentation. You now know what the system is always supposed to look like, assuming no one SSHs to it and fixes it. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually like the executable documentation uh, line as well, and. The thing I like to stress around configuration management is it's an ongoing process. It's not something that happens once, like a setup script. It's something that, you know, we'll watch for configuration drift. We'll bring things back. But it's only, and this is something that, you know, uh, a lot of the audiences I talk to that are just kind of getting into this space um, miss, is it's only explicitly configuring what you tell it to configure. If I go and turn something on or on a server that is not explicitly being configured by my configuration management, I have no visibility into that. So it, it's it's the things that we're being intentional about configuring on a on a system. In, in either the positive sense, like asserting something's there, or in a negative sense, as in you know we don't want it to be there. There's one other kind of direction I've taken this as well when I talk to people, and this is, I think, a little more true of Chef than it is of uh, Puppet or uh, some of the other tools, but the idea that you take a step back and start treating your servers as um, software objects that have just really crappy APIs, uh, 
Chef and Puppet become this awesome API to managing the software object. So if you can start thinking of it in terms of, oh, I just have this software object that happens to have a really crappy API, and um, I can use something like Chef or Puppet on top of it to manage what it does instead of this, oh, we went and configured this thing. Well, it's an object. It's a software. It's um, you know something you're interacting with in code. I really like the documentation description because for me that's I, I've only started using configuration management recently but what it's what it's allowed me to do is instead of saying well what did we do to that one server to make the thing work finally it's all it's all there in the scripts to set up and update and maintain the servers and there isn't any lost knowledge because it's it's all there Trevor that's a huge point there uh, you know, I talked. I've talked to a lot of guys who work in medium-sized and small shops, and they're like, you know, I don't need this stuff. I only have a handful of servers. Until the point where you have to re-implement that system, or you have, you know, hardware yep. fails, or you have to, you have to uh, expand the environment, and then it's okay. What did I do six months ago, a year ago, four years ago when I stood this box up? You know, what was that one trick to the registry key that I had to find, or the or the service I had to disable, or whatever config file that I had to tweak to make this thing work and not losing that and surfacing that and having that under change control and you know that, that's one of the huge benefits of this uh, of these types of platforms and it's really great too because for example I w we were trying to enable websockets on one of our server setups a few weeks ago and I got pushbacks from one of my coworkers you know saying why you know why we why should we try figuring out how to write a script to enable websockets, we can just go into the server manager and do it. And I finally got Whoa. him to agree to do it. <laughs> and it was two lines. And he's like, oh, that was way easier than I expected it to be. And it's like, yeah, now we don't ever have to worry about it. Well, even if it is a complex script, if mm -hmm. it comes down to, you know, it, once it's done, it's done. And now the next time you have to do that, you don't have to do that whole thing again. You know, even if there are multiple steps, and that's actually one of the things is it starts to abstract away the, you know, those huge multi-step processes, and bring you just kind of a, a surface view of okay, what is the end result of those things? Like most things tend to over overthink this kind of stuff, <laughs> so I, I kind of give config management a uh, slightly more generic uh, uh, definition that includes basically anything you can possibly do. Uh, any techniques and strategies for for uh, managing uh, configuration and its complexity, you know, and things like manual configuration and execution management and like, all that non like policy driven executable documentation CF engine derived stuff uh, gets to live underneath the uh, configuration management umbrella as well. So, that's just me. So so in in our experience, when we talk about the what business problems are we solving with configuration management? Uh, I mean, I gave the example of, of being able to, or I alluded to, I guess I can, can put it into more detail, the, to be able to speed your automation of your software delivery because you're having a trusted target. So I think that's that's one one business problem that I see that it solves, is it's it's an enabler of, of more automation in your delivery process and then therefore reducing cycle time and shortening a feedback loop. But so, those aren't the only business problems we have, right? <laughs> so I basically, uh, going way back, when I first implemented Puppet, the simplest thing was just time savings. It was, how can we get it so that the SSH config is the same on all the boxes? And very quickly, it, it's funny, the Puppet aspect of things didn't actually uh, win over a lot of people. It was the stored configuration that won everybody over because it, all of a sudden because we had the Puppet client running on all of the boxes, I now had a database that I could go query information about those boxes and write, I wrote a couple of facts right off the bat that answered questions about, well, what does this box do and what, you know, those types of things. So you get the CMDB side of it. And, you know, for me, the in the enterprise, in the, the traditional IT shop, it solves a problem, problems more around user access management and things like being able to do uh, auditing and all, all of those kinds of like just standard IT things. And 
then when you get into the development side of the house and the engineering side of the house, it's the the DBAs now get a box that looks exactly the same with all the users. Because if you've ever installed Oracle, you know that there are like 30 users and all sorts of crap that has to be done just to get it so that they can install the database. Like I'm not even talking installing Oracle. I'm just talking the baseline to be at a point where they can install Oracle. That was a huge win when I was at UCR. Now it's, you know, we're talking about going the Netflix model and, and, you know, pre-baking AMIs and it is a DSL that lets us quickly iterate on what those things should look like. And we can take it from Vagrant to Packer to all of the other things. So those are the kind of the big business problems I see it solving. I was thinking too when you talked about being able to give the boxes to the DBAs that were set up that way. I think a a great advantage of using configuration management is again predictable environments. And again, coming from the tech ops background, you know, it's it, it can solve for you the whole. Well, it worked in QA. Why didn't it work in production? Or hey, it worked on my laptop. That's the worst one, um, right? You know, I worked on my laptop. Why didn't it work in QA? And Config management lets you extend that to say, hey, if I'm developing an application, I don't have to worry about configuring, you know, the lamp, a LAMP stack on my laptop or getting IIS configured the same way that it's supposed to be or all the pieces and parts. I can use uh, a local virtualization solution to get myself a machine that looks just like production except for scale. And then I know it will work all the way through the process. Um, I'm a believer that developer laptops Outside of their v- outside of the VMs running on them, they should be used for email. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so, so the the other you know kind of tack along there. Uh, the other business problem is for uh, that I see config management helping with is I have an app that behaves differently on one box than the next, and if I have you know three boxes are behaving the same way and one box that's not, well something's out of whack on that other box. Config management narrows down where that variation can be and rather than you know maybe I'll dump the logs off that box and and reimage it because it's going to take me you know 20 minutes to get a new physical box into you know with an OS and fully configured and ready to go and lay down the config management on it so it's ready for apps versus uh, going in and spending um, you know and spending 2 hours troubleshooting the thing to maybe try to bring it back into compliance. I can return it to a known good state much, much faster, and I can grab the logs for troubleshooting at a later time offline when it's not causing a problem. Like they say, it should always be easier to build a new environment than fix a broken one. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that if you don't have config management, because if you're doing everything by hand, it can take days or, or weeks. Um, or I've, I've seen too this, like you said, where you see that drift, and that's where you know the name of our episode comes from, right? It's configuration drift, you know, where you run into that scenario where you say, okay, so I got this one server in production, I'm going to go and maybe I'll take it out of my load balancer, so it's not serving traffic, but I'm trying to troubleshoot and I want to use a node that's in production. Um, but then you forget that you gave someone access to it so they could troubleshoot it, and then you put it back in there, and now you don't know that that one of your 300 web servers is different than the other 299 until weeks or months later when it's misbehaving and you have no idea. Right, and, and that's, you know, and, and that's where config management's kind of one piece of the puzzle, you know, and try, it's trying to get away from giving these, you know, having a reason to interactively interact with a particular machine because, um, I forgot who said it first, but, you know, once once somebody interacts, you know, logs in interactively on a machine, you don't know the state of that machine. And you, it could you just, be... You just beat me to that. That's Mark Burgess. Yeah. Yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's... Even, you know, even if the person just logs in, you know, there's startup scripts that could run or group policies that could apply if you're in a Windows environment or um, any number of things can happen to change the state of that system. And if that impacts... The application that uh, the application that's being served, or the, or the purpose that that machine's serving, you know, now you have that one bit of variation. So, you know, config management one piece of the puzzle. But then you have to be able to replicate the other services of why somebody would need to get onto that box. You need to provide troubleshooting tools and rich logging and all you know, all sorts of other capabilities around that uh, to keep people off the boxes. I had an experience. Um, once when we were first, I was at a shop where we actually were implementing Puppet, and 
I I kept get, I kept burning myself because I was the one who put it out there, and we we're using it to in this case to manage some um, of our CMS platform, and I would sit there, and then you know it, it was troubleshooting something. I you know kind of had all the deployment going through uh, the configuration of the systems through Puppet, and then one of the developers comes over, one of the content developers comes over and says, hey, you know the images are all showing broken in QA, and I went and I looked at you know of course what do I do because in my defense I'm new to this, <laughs> and so I you know. SSH in the box, and I take a look at it, and I'm like, oh, you know, I've got this alias is wrong, you know, this symlink is wrong, I'll fix that. And I say, hey, is it working? Oh, yeah, it's great, you know, and then 15 minutes later, he comes over, he goes, it's broken again, because we had another puppet run, it came back, and it undid everything I did, because I made the change manually. And I think that's a that's a really hard uh, shift you have to make, that you can't do these things manually, because your config management tool will actually potentially come and undo what you did, if you don't make the change through your configuration management. Absolutely. If, if you're not used to that, in that used to that process, and your gut reaction is still to to go in and change it because you know how to change it in the interface, or you have a script sitting on the server that you would run, or you have a sit so just you know, any number of different things that you are used to doing, yeah. you're gonna break your state. Yeah. This is why the. The term infrastructure as code is also pretty popular, right? Because um, it kind of like beats home the fact that you know, like you should be treating the policy description of your machines um, the same way that you would anything else, like in you know, like the software kind of world, right? So like you edit files and, and put them in version control, and like you test them, and then you deploy them. Um, Versus, you know, logging into machines and manipulating them with your fingers, right? Which is is one of the, which is the way people have done it since you know, like the beginning of time, right? A <laughs> um, cool side effect of this is like, so if, if you look at um, a number of the strategies that typical operation shops employ to actually like reduce the amount of complexity in their environments. One of them is to, to, to be a monoculture when it, when it comes to, like, you know, uh, their servers. So, like, we are a Windows 2003 shop, or we are a RHEL 5 shop, and it will be that way in, until, you know, the next 5, 10 years comes along and we need to refresh everything. And configuration management comes along, and, and, and suddenly, like, that monoculture is not necessarily that important anymore. So if you have all of your, your server configurations described in a, a CM language, right, the upgrade between RHEL 5 and RHEL 6, yeah, you're going to have to shake a, shake a couple bugs out, but, you know, you're starting at a really good place where you can go in and just, like, figure out what the differences are between the two systems and adjust your policy accordingly instead of having to go back and be like, oh, we need to boil the ocean, so like we're going to be stuck on this platform for no reason. right? And it's a huge bummer when you want to run software and you can't because you're on a 10-year-old operating system. you know. Uh, and I think CM tools alleviate a, a lot of the, the reason people like to, to stick with um, kind of older, kind of older uh, operating systems, which is kind of cool. Excellent point. I, I, uh, that is one of the biggest selling points for config management uh, solutions like you know like Puppet Chef or uh, Zard State or CF Engine, because number one you make it easy to test out the new OSs because it's easy to get that replica of your environment down, mm-hmm. and then two it's it's easy to tweak it because you're following these you're following practices of you have version control so you're not you don't worry about making a tweak or a change to something and testing it out because you can always get back. You can always see that, that history of, of the changes you've made. Uh, enabling that capability to upgrade OS or, or migrate platforms and and have a strong starting place is absolutely huge. Yeah. And another kind of related topic is uh, so something that's been... Uh, so I forget who coined this immutable infrastructure, immutable servers term, but I kind of hate it. <laughs> well, I mean, the whole point is, is like, okay, we're going to build this system, right, and then never touch it until, like, we want to completely rebuild it. That's fine, 
totally cool, do that, but it doesn't make it immutable, right? Like, it doesn't mean, you know, like something can't change on it, right? And very, very often, um, inside of an actual cluster of machines or like an, an infrastructure with a capital I, like you need to make little tweaks, right? Uh, my favorite one is like, let's say you have um, the, the classic like load balancer pool, right? You want to add another machine to the pool, okay, um, are you going to like rebuild your load balancer or no, you're, like you're going to go in and like adjust the four bytes of, you know, like however many bytes of data, 32 bytes of data like in the load balancer config that you need to point it at this new machine and not like completely throw the thing away. Um, what if you're doing, you know, pack, like local packet filtering between all the, the nodes in a cluster, right? You just need to update like one firewall rule, right? You're going to completely destroy the machine and like push another like four gigabytes of data down a pipe and like bring up a new one for every machine when you need to change, you know, like literally like like one line of config in all your machines. Like it's it just seems a little like over the top to me. You know? And I think it's if if I'm following you right, and I would agree, is that you could take this what was probably a good idea and take it to an insane conclusion. Like you said, I'm going to blow everything away because I'm making a small change, and. To me, I, and I think where everybody is kind of getting the idea, as, as usual, is from Netflix, right? You know, where they, you know, the, the concept is when I'm releasing software, instead of deploying it to existing infrastructure, I'm yeah. going to deploy it to new stuff, and I'm going to do a canary release. So I'm going to bring up some new machines, you know, I'm going to deploy to these new machines, send 1%, 2%, 3%, da 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 and I basically just destroy the boxes that had my old code on it. Yeah. And to me, that makes a lot of sense, because yeah. it's, it's a safer way to do it, but I also don't think that necessarily, like you said, and maybe if you're someone like, if you're doing the 10 deploys a day, then mm -hmm. yeah, your machines don't live long enough that you have to manage them very long. But most yeah. people aren't doing that. <laughs> well, I mean, but they should be, right? You know? <laughs> um, They're getting there. They're the not reason why I like to include other things under the config management umbrella is because, like, like people like to, like, everybody's excited about Docker right now, right? Um, so containerization, like that, that's actually execution management. Um, if you're and you nerd off on it for long enough, um, it's not mutually exclusive with the uh, convergent policy description-based configuration management at all, right? And, and people somehow like to think that they are or they should be. Like no, like you can totally apply a chef recipe or a uh, desired state, what, what do they call them in Windows land? <laughs> uh, configuration, desired state configuration, yeah. Yeah, or a puppet module. Yeah. Well, actually, you, you, uh, you can't apply DSC to a Docker container because you can't containerize Windows, right? Oh. <laughs> so, there's nothing stopping you from, from building that with your config management yeah. and then, like, a snapshot and throwing it in like your EP2 load balancing pool at all. As a matter of fact, you should do that, right? Like you don't need to start at that base state and spend 15 minutes converging a node every time you bring like a new image online. You don't have to. As long as the details about the image are captured in your config management policy, that's great. And like that's what you should be doing. You know. And then, you know, when you want to upgrade to the latest Amazon Linux or whatever is going to come out next month, like fine. Like do the small amount of debugging on your config policy that you need and have fun, you know. Yeah, and I, I, I agree too where you, you talk about, you know, you don't necessarily have to start from nothing. And there was, uh, actually it was the most recent episode of, of Food Fight. Uh, Lucis was talking about this a lot about, and he, he, he uh, I don't know if he coined it, but I'm going to credit him with it, the term a leaden image as opposed to a golden one, right? It has to be turned into gold, but it's almost there. And we were talking about it today, and uh, one of my coworkers said, you know, I would prefer the term brown and serve, because it's not quite baked. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're going to start talking about brown and serve images instead yeah, of I mean, ones. If images aren't bad. It's, it's, it's the loss of the resolution about the details of the image that's bad, right? So, like, images became bad, like, back, like, remember when everybody first got their shiny new VMware cluster last decade, like, the first thing they would do is they'd log into machines, and they'd start manipulating with their fingers, right? They'd make with the clicky-clicky, and, like, type the box, and do the thing, and they'd snapshot the machine, and treat that image as 
the artifacts that they're using, like that, that was the config management strategy that they were using. And the reason that's bad is they're losing the history of the configuration. It's, it's baked into the image, but it's nowhere else, right? They can't reproduce it easily. So you're stuck with these like forks of these images and stuff that you can't even update, right? Um, so, so yeah, fine. Like, Use images all day long. Don't spend a half an hour building new VMs when you don't need to, but you need to have the, the details captured somewhere. And that's what configuration management is. It's that, that executable documentation, that policy. Exactly. And so the way I've been kind of communicating this to some of my developers so that they understand like what's going on, because they get frustrated. It's like, well, I need to go write some puppet code and make this happen and push it out. And they're like, why do you need to just, you just go in and yum install. And, and when I explained, okay, well, think of it in two ways. Number one, if I go and modify config on that box. It's effectively like me going and mo going and modifying what's running in production in your code base and not checking it back into version control system. Like it, do, it doesn't make it back into the repo or you're the other way to think about it. If you look at the system as the software object, it's effectively like going and connecting to using like a de debugger to the running software process, mm -hmm. making a change to an object and then disconnecting. Uh, there's no record of whatever happened there. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like I'm gonna log into your web server and hand edit this HTML file, okay? Like, so why should my NTP configuration be any different than your HTML file? You know, like, stop it. So everyone here kind of has a different, uh, from, from a tools perspective, kind of comes from a different different background. Um, we're all talking about the same kind of thing. But one of the things I thought would be interesting, and this is certainly not a, a, a bake-off or a, you know, competitive kind of thing, but but feel free to, you know, throw it down if you want. Um, just wanted to talk about, so we kind of are saying, like, I know, you know, Sh Sean is, is from Chef, you know, uh, Chris is Mr. Puppet, and, and Steve is, like, one of the thought leaders, I would say, around PowerShell, DSC, or Desire State Config, uh, configuration. And I kind of wanted to talk a little bit for people who don't know, so what's the difference? And there's other tools, there's CF Engine, there's Ansible, there's Salt, there's all sorts of other stuff, other ways to do this. What do we see as kind of the big differences between the three ones? Um, not that, because I mean, people might be wondering, you hear about it, you're like, hey, what, what, why are they different? Yeah, um, I, I, I'll, I'll take this one to start, I guess. Um, <clears throat> so, Something I've been like, I've always liked to do, because like I kind of have like a long CM background. Um, I've used TF Engine, I've used Puppet, I've used Chef, I've played around with Ansible and Salt. I like to start this conversation off by kind of like showing how they're the same, right? And then talking about the differences, right? Like what makes them CM like for real, right? Yeah. So what's, what's the joke? Should I use Puppet or Chef? Yes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> what are the differences there? And and what makes config management tools, like the modern crop of them, kind of all the same, is like they're all kind of derived from this idea that was was first delivered with CF Engine of, of convergent operations, right? So like test and repair mechanisms, right? So every instruction that's executed on your machine for the purposes of actually configuring it, right? It's a test and repair mechanism, right? Like I'm gonna test the state and then take action to repair it if I need to, right? So test and repair, test and repair. If you look at what a CF engine promises, it's it's exactly that. Like it's it's a test and repair. And then along came Puppet, again, test and repair, right? Uh, a lot of people like to call this item potent. I think they're wrong, but you know, whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to actually write this file because it, it looks the way it needs to, so I'm going to move on to the next thing, right? And uh, I'm not going to install this package because it's already there. I'm not going to attempt to start the service because it's already running. I'm not going to install the user because it's already correct. You know, uh, That's what makes all the tools the same is because they all behave in this way. And what the DSL provides, right, the DSLs actually restrict the, the instructions that you can execute on your machine to these convergent test and repair operators, right? And then you build um, policy by putting these in, into groups, right? Uh, so like promise bundles and puppet modules and chef recipes, they're all just names for, for, for groups of these test and repair operators, right? Um, so that's how they're the same, right? How they're different is they have different attitudes around, uh, you know, 
like ordering, like how is that accomplished? Um, just, there's different philosophies around different kind of like nuance and subtlety around it, um, about various like, ways that they think that this should behave, right? Um, and then of course you have like the language stuff, right? You know, like oh, like chefs Ruby and a lot of people detest Ruby with the blaze of a thousand hot suns, right? You know, so they're going to go to Python and because it's written in Ansible, right? Like com completely overlooking the fact that the meat of it is like you know YAML, right? <laughs> you know, and um, uh, the the Windows stuff, like it's really cool. But if I want to write a new, you know resource type for it, I have to break out the .NET to actually do it, right, you know. Um, so that's so that's kind of how they're all like the same and, and, and different in my mind. So the way I normally, because I get this question a lot, the way I kind of answer that question obviously is yes, just pick one and go with it. The big place I kind of differentiate is with Puppet, you are more limited in what you can do, so you have less of an ability to shoot yourself in the foot. Um, but at the same time, uh, with and there are some interesting uh, things about the way it handles ordering that's uh, a big differentiator uh, as far as the way the graph works. So um, I generally point out to people when you're talking about Chef, so Chef uses a run list, and if you're an idiot like this guy sometimes, um, and you for you put your SSH after your uh, say your web stack and your web stack blows up um, while you're provisioning a box and your SSH config didn't happen first you now can't get into the box that's an example of one of the problems you can run into um, but on Puppet the way the graph works in concept if you, you know once again if you do it right SSH doesn't depend on the web stack so if the web stack blows up it blows up separate from SSH getting completely configured because um, the graph handles uh, separating those concerns. On the flip side, because Puppet is limited, you can't do things that just will drive you batty. So like string manipulation, um, which seems to be 90% of configura configuration management sometimes, uh, is very difficult to handle in Puppet because you don't have uh, access to native func functions like uh, gsub and uh, all of that goodness. So th those are the kinds of things that I um, that I differentiate them on. Uh, and generally, uh, and I don't know how know that I agree with this anymore, especially after having some time to kind of hang out with some chef folks at uh, at uh, scale this year. But for a while there, I absolutely for older old school ops people, I tended to push them towards Puppet. I don't know how true that is anymore, uh, especially with uh, Ruby 187 being deprecated and um, the, the Omnibus installer being amazing. Uh, but I absolutely, for devs, I almost always say, you know, go look at Chef. Uh, it will, it'll be a little bit more of a natural feel to you. Well, I guess that leaves me up here um, to talk a little bit about DSC. And so I, I would actually say that DSC probably isn't ready for prime time yet as a standalone config management thing, and I don't necessarily know if it, that's really where it's headed to be. So the primary part of desired state config is the local configuration manager, the agent on the box. And basically what that is is that everything that, that has Windows Management Framework 4, uh, which can be Server 2008 R2 and up, or Server 2012, it's there by default. Uh, 2012 R2, I'm sorry, it's there by default. But basically every Windows box will have a config management agent available to it on the box. And it's accessible over WinRM. There's an API and a standard way to uh, define a configuration and send that on down the pipe. And that agent can be leveraged by whomever, whatever, however. And um, that is, that's really the key part of desired state configuration um, that there's this you know a, a standard way to manage windows boxes and that the hope is that other other uh, config management tools will embrace that and leverage that so that way I, when resources are written for a windows box they can be leveraged by chef or by puppet or cf engine or ansible or or whomever because they can all connect in and because the local configuration manager that local agent is doing the work 
it's you know it can it, it can use it can use those shared resources and then the DSL that's used to generate those configurations can be whatever it can be it can be the Ruby it could be the puppet DSL it could be what CF engine uses what whatever that's one of the big differences there in, in DSC now there is some basic infrastructure in DSC to actually kind of do a self-contained thing and that's something I'm playing with at Stack Exchange Number one, because I have the latitude to do it, and so I can kind of, there, there's some stuff there so that because there isn't any product out there currently that uses the local configuration manager, there's kind of this minimum viable product worth of uh, infrastructure around it to be able to, uh, there's a uh, PowerShell DSL to generate uh, configurations. There is a minimal pull server to distribute them and then an imperative way to push those configurations out to out to machines so there, there's you know enough functionality in there to kind of highlight it to prove it out to test it I don't necessarily know if uh, unless you're a total Windows shop and you can't stand up a Linux box in your environment and you can't use a hosted service I don't necessarily know if I would push anybody towards being a solely a DSC style shop you see DSC working, and this is kind of my my thought, and I'd like to, to see what, if I'm if you think I'm on the right track is working in, in concert with letting something that's that's it's almost it's like you said it's the agent piece, right? It's something that that something like Chef or Puppet can kind of dish off to um, and and handle it safely. Then like today, right? I can write a Chef recipe that's going to execute a PowerShell script, but it's not going to be. Idempotent, sorry, Sean, because uh, <laughs> it's just going to tell me did the script run or not, and what was its exit code. But yeah. it's not going to. I didn't going to have to put smartness in my script. Whereas if instead of that I'm calling a DS some type of DSC provider, DSC is going to then be able to come back and and basically say yeah everything's the way it should be. That's kind of how I've been been seeing it, and and mm -hmm. I think one of the things I like is, you know, doing a lot of work in Windows places with Chef, is it's just the stuff's not necessarily always there, and Windows without DSC doesn't always lend itself to being configured in a really nice way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, start starting with Server 2012, um, the reach of the PowerShell ecosystem uh, really grew. Um, you could do a lot of stuff on 2008 R2 and earlier. Um, it was somewhat painful, and you were reaching into WMI a lot to to do things, or you were calling uh, certain .NET APIs or classes. And you know, once they hit Server 2012, they they started um, they they restructured a lot of the internal APIs, and they came up with a way that you could uh, layer basically a config file and auto-generate PowerShell commands off of those APIs. So teams that didn't necessarily have the time to spend building standalone commands could expose a PowerShell management surface very easily and in, in a very standard way. So, and that influenced to the structure of their APIs that, that they that they rebuilt. That was all part of that plan. So you went from having like around 200 commands to cover things to 2,400 commands covering, you know, your network and your firewall and, you know, Active Directory and all, basically, you know, top to bottom there, there's very little that is untouched now by command line coverage uh, in the on, win, on Windows Server but that's server 2012 and, and up and that's the OS um, yeah. and I, I don't want to go too much in the weeds on DSC although I, I, I love that we're talking about it because it's it's new and it's not the, the same old stuff and I know we're putting uh, Chris to sleep here but, no, no, no. Uh, I actually have a question around this because oh. this is I've done uh, ironically, I've become the token Windows guy in my, uh, my environment. Um, but so I did a bit with Puppet on Windows on uh, Windows 2008, and I, I'm gonna bite my tongue a little bit. But so my question to, and this is probably for Sean and um, for Matt, as far as how does Chef interact? Because one of the things that killed me with uh, with Puppet is you get in, and it's like, oh, I want to set up IIS, except that is so not intuitive because you've got to go grab this module that handles DISM roles and you have to do some magic to figure out which of the, you know, 50 million DISM roles you actually need. And then, you know, you, the the cool thing is is that the web.config file actually gets created as part of um, the, uh, 
as part of your application in most cases, but that doesn't handle configuring the initial site. And because I think my biggest problem with Windows has always been when I've gone to do it is the disconnect. Like when I'm on a NIC-based system, any one of them, you know, whether you're in Chef, Puppet, Ansible, you effectively have this, um, you know, package, config, service trifecta that, I mean, literally HTTP is, uh, you know, package HTTPD, you know, Etsy HTTPD.conf slash HTTPD or whatever, and, you know, service HTTPD. And I've never been, like, that hurdle, even with the CM tools, I've never been able to get over other than um, with lots of bourbon. So You're working too hard, man. Yeah. So <laughs> I, well, I got a couple couple thoughts because this is, and, and again, as much as we say we don't want to, like, trash on stuff, but I spend most of my day configuring Windows systems with Chef and trying to make it work. Um, and th there's a couple things that get in, in, in the way, and this is where it would go into a question I have about DSC. So one of the things you mentioned that makes this a big challenge is there is no real good package management for Windows. So it's super hard when you want to talk about getting a piece and part there. It's fine for all the stuff that's that's part of the OS because you can use features. And, and, and like you said, the question about Chef, it's pretty easy. The Windows cookbook exposes these things super easy. Um, and IIS is actually, and I haven't tried to do, uh, to, be, to be fair, it's been over a year since I've, I've done anything with Puppet on Windows. And one of the main reasons just that I kind of initially started doing more with Chef is that I couldn't do anything but POSIX-based ACLs when I was using Puppet, and that caused a bit of a problem for me. And Chef could handle it, and therefore, that's where I started down that road. But, you know, like, configuring IIS is not terribly challenging with Chef because there's an IIS cookbook but it's still not as easy as you would think because it's still running um, AppCMD, right? It's still just doing, it's sending commands, and it will send them over and over again, whether they need to be run or not sometimes. Um, but then things that really start to get to be a big pain, and this is leading into what I'm going to ask you, Steve, is, say, SQL Server, okay? And there is a SQL cookbook, a Microsoft SQL cookbook, and... Uh, I don't remember if Sean. I may have actually bugged you about this already, <laughs> and I think you, <laughs> I don't remember if I was sent you a note or not. Uh, it works great with SQL Express because SQL Express is one exe that get that gets run. But if you want to install SQL Server standard or enterprise, it's a whole bunch of files that have to be pulled down, and it it you know you can't just say. I mean, again, SQL has a great unattended install. It has a silent install, and we've done stuff where we've broken out you know, the config any for it as a template in Chef and populated that with attributes, and that's all fine and good. But it's certainly not, it's not going to go and change, right? It's great for installing SQL in the first time, but it's certainly not going to go back, and if somebody changes something in the core configuration of the SQL server, it's not going to fix it. And so my question to you, Mr. DSC, is uh, what is... The support for the non-OS related things in Desire State configuration these days. Um, so there's not a ton of official support yet. Uh, so this this product officially just RTM, you know, uh, you know, le like six months ago. Right. So, um, <laughs> and the way things tend to go, uh, in, in my experience at, at Microsoft, is that until something's around as a feature, other external teams won't take dependencies on it until they know it's actually a thing. So like uh, PowerShell, uh, when PowerShell first came out, uh, Exchange was one of the first big big people, uh, big customers to leverage it. When um, And it was a lot of work to get them to buy in on that because they were building the PowerShell management infrastructure for it as PowerShell was still working its way to RTM. And so um, there's not a... there. Uh, the you know the, the total dev time for for DSC to begin with was a very short cycle. It between server 2012 and server 2012 R2, you know that was like about a year. Uh, so it was a, a very short uh, dev cycle for for the OS. So feature wise, um, there wasn't a lot of time for a lot of internal teams to to take dependency on it. Now that it's actually a feature that is part of the OS that's there, it's on by default. Other other teams can start building on that. Now, product teams at Microsoft, whether they're part of the OS or whether they're external like SQL Server, uh, they respond to customer pressure. 
if their customers aren't asking for it, it's not as high a priority for them. Uh, I know that there are uh, that internally, the PowerShell team has been very active in lobbying uh, for the use of DSC around Microsoft, but it's customer voices that really start getting this, getting it driven. And um, I know I've asked for for DSC support around SQL Server, but you know, in there there are some community resources already around SQL Server. Um, so I curate the uh, PowerShell that uh, PowerShell.org uh, community repository, and uh, and we'll we put have, a link to that in the show notes. And uh, we have um, we have some resources now kind of growing there. The PowerShell team has actually sent out a bunch of their demo resources. Um, I'm everything I'm building pretty much we're putting out there. Uh, we've had some other contributions as well. But this is an area that we want to grow. And you know, if the product teams are slower to get stuff out, well, I've got needs I need to deal with now. So you know, SQL, and SQL Server is one of them. So there, there's some basic stuff around the install now. But as far as like ongoing management. That's that's a need that needs to happen, and you know, Matt, if you want something around that, file an issue on GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, because no, absolutely, I'm, I mean, that's yeah, uh, I, I'm getting more and more interest from people, you know, in that in that space and in playing around with it and wanting to try the stuff out and try building some of these resources and, you know, it, it's uh, it's a wide open space right now, but it's a very very young space. So, cool. So I want to have another question um, to kind of throw around there. So we've been talking about the advantage of it. We actually got kind of deep on some of the different ways the tools work. So what are so let's say all right, someone's listened to this podcast. They they drank the Kool Aid. They said all right, config management starts awesome. How do they start? So the answer really becomes uh, it depends on the tool you start with. Um, if you are on Chef, you are going to, and I know I'm, I'm a, the puppet guy, but I've been doing this a lot, answering these questions a lot. So Chef, um, there are some amazing tutorials on. I want to say it's LearnChef.com, and Puppet Labs has a set of tutorials as well, and uh, those videos and those, and I want to say Puppet actually provides a Vagrant box to get you started, which may or may not make life easier for you. The that's the way to start is to just jump in and um, and go to the two the two sites. Obviously, I'm just saying Puppet or Chef, and then play with it. it you know, it's just like code. The best thing to do is actually write a little bit of it and see what happens. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, my answer to that is always been start small. You know, like this stuff does have the power for you to, you know, like. When wielded properly, you can do amazing things, right? Like you can run disaster recovery scenarios in the cloud and like restore everything. You know, like you can you can literally automate your entire business with these tools. But that shouldn't be where you're starting, right? Like you should start as small as possible. You should um, pick one class of machine and try to model it with your tool. Uh, start there, right? So you can pick the original one, throw it away, and bring a new one up. Um, that kind of thing. Uh, so some, one thing I would recommend uh, to anyone uh, using any tool from any community is um, start trying to like don't don't try to like um, use a lot of the community modules at first. Uh, a lot of the, the, the community chef cookbooks, a lot of the community puppet modules. I'm not really sure what the Ansible landscape looks like right now. Uh, start by writing your own. Um, and there's a couple different reasons for this. The first one is um, if you don't, you, you need to be an expert in both that technology that the cookbook or the puppet module represents and the tool itself to figure out what's going on. Um, and that is a huge uh, barrier to entry for people uh, when they're, they're, they go to run some random cookbook and they see some random error and they're like, oh, what's this? I don't understand it. Um, they just get frustrated, right? Versus if they start to write their own and it's like, oh, this is really easy. I can install a package and drop a file off and start the service. Like, I get this. You know, it makes that, that learning curve uh, much less steep, right? 
Um, so my advice is just to start small. But jump in and start small. That's yeah. amazing advice. I keep wanting to like mash a plus one button, but I don't have a plus one <laughs> button to mash. Um, and so that's what I've actually done is I generally for very specifically for people like in the the sysadmin the Linux and Unix sysadmin world, I generally suggest okay, we'll start with something that's you know is going to be the same across all sorts of things like SSH. Like yep. yes, if you're if you're coming from the academic environment like I've been in, you've got you know, 200 machines, and maybe a hundred of those have um, are running the same. Or I'm sorry, maybe any given set of like five of them have the same application on them. Otherwise, they're all their own unique snowflakes. So I always find, you know, find something that's going to be the same everywhere, and you don't have to do a whole lot of uh, what is it supposed to do? So usually, I suggest SSH or um, Hesitantly, sometimes resolve.conf, but that can get you into trouble too. <laughs> Everything's a freaking DNS problem, right? <laughs> or DNS. I, Don't try to start DNS. <laughs> I absolutely, one of the first things I do when I build out a new puppet infrastructure is I create, so when I'm like setting up how the puppet config should look in the puppet module, the puppet module to manage the puppet config on the box, I add a host entry uh, that points back to the puppet master that it that's responsible for serving that box because I know that if I screw something up and resolve.conf goes wonky, at least there's a host entry on that box that can get me back to the puppet master to fix it. It can always go back to the mothership. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah just to kind of tack along uh, the direction you know suggested by, by Sean and, and Chris there is to also to... Uh, instead of you know, picking a single server, maybe start with your server deployment checklist if you have that in your environment. You know, for me it was okay. We had on the Linux side of things when we were deploying servers, there were like four things on our checklist. You know, is it in our CMDB? Is it in monitoring? Is it it? You know, and then is Puppet enabled? And I always forget the fourth thing. Yeah. I don't know. And the Windows That's side, why it's not a checklist. <laughs> right. Exactly. On the Windows side of things, though, it's like 30 items. And so my velocity in being able to deploy a Windows Server was much much lower. And uh, granted, we do we do a few more things uh, on those because they're specifically tuned for particular workloads. Um, but as things have grown, we still do a lot more on, or we're doing a lot on, on the Linux side of things as well. It's just all masked by Puppet. And so what I started doing was I started building resources. Because there's only a handful out of the box in DSC. There's nothing. Nothing else existed. I, I started this back when DSC was first announced in the server tap program. So it was early, in the early adoption program. So I started building the resources to do to to do the things that I would normally do in a in a deployment script, and you know, and making that match the pattern for desired state config, and that that was how I kind of got started. And and I started you know with one server, and then. How do I get this to multiple servers and, and kind of building and learning from that? Cool. Okay. I have a confession to make because it, this just gets me thinking about it. You get to a point when you've done this long enough that you stop forgetting how the normal commands work. Um, yep. So like check config uh, <laughs> is a perfect example. I literally will run puppet apply dash e service service name dash uh, or you know puppet apply dash e service name enable is true on a box instead of trying to figure out how to run check config because I always forget. Yeah. So, so it's like service Adam and then like service name like or start and then like yeah they would reverse the arguments around depending on what platform you're on and just oh Jesus. Yeah. Steve's advice is super duper duper effective uh, for, for getting uh, people uh, ramped up with CM, um, to, to take existing documentation that you have, whether it's a, a broken wiki page or like a run book, and like translating it into the executable documentation is, is, is huge, right? It, it really clicks light bulbs on over people's heads about like what exactly this is and why it's, it's good. And very, and very quickly... Um, can, can I just, uh, just, I wanted to follow up on one um, thing that, that was important. You said yeah, taking that and translating it into configuration mm -hmm. management. 
not pasting it into configuration management, not taking your setup scripts and just shoving them into Chef or into Puppet or into something else, but turning it into that yeah. new language. Adapting it. Yeah, I mean, so so we had one customer who had, who had a run book for setting up a server. It was literally like an inch and a half thick, right, where it was like, okay, you know, your provisioning team just handed you this box, page one, right, like install this software from the, you know what I mean, page two, like edit this configuration file. It was that detailed, and I'm like, it was really impressive, actually. Um, but yeah, it was it was perfect kind of thing for them to go through and be like, oh, okay, so I'm going to write a package resource here, I'm going to write a template resource there, I'm going to write a service resource here, and you also find out that you actually you're missing resolution from the documentation too, right? So like, install Apache. Okay, what version of Apache, right? You know, like you'll find uh, actual holes in, in in your you know documentation this way too. So. Yep. Yeah. What modules do you need to enable, and all? Yeah, all that sort of stuff. And this is a conversation yeah. I actually had when um, Puppet DB was released with the uh, folks over at um, Puppet Labs. Of, they're they have amazing technical writers, and their technical documentation was awesome, uh, but they didn't release a module at the same time. And it's like, guys, I, your te your docs are great, except I'm confused on this part and this part. Whereas if you had just published the module, and they did so within a few days, actually. Um, uh, so kudos to them. But it was the, give me, a, the, you've got a language that's, uh, that defines exactly how to configure th things. Um, give it to me in that format instead of uh, English, which sucks for describing the actual state of the world. Before we go into the checkouts, just want to get everybody to reply and say, what is your thought on the future of configuration management? Where are we going? I think I've already stated it, but I'll reiterate. Um, servers are going to become software objects, and it's just going to be one gigantic development code base. Um, maybe not one code base, but you get the idea. We're going to treat everything more and more as just a development project and um, with slightly different uh, requirements, just like we treat UI projects slightly different than we treat back-end projects. Anybody else got a crystal ball? <laughs> I, I think it's going to eat the world. I think software is eating the world, and I think that config management is going to be a huge part of it. And um, we, we've already, we're, we're somewhere along the adoption curve, right? I mean, you got to remember CFM has been around for 20 years, right? Big uh, L config. You know, people have been, there's obviously a problem here that people have been trying to solve, right? And we keep inventing tools, right? And like tools are cultural artifacts. And you know, like as developer culture eats the world, you will see these artifacts everywhere, right? Um, and it's gonna be fun, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Yeah, I, I definitely think we're, uh, you know, amongst the group here, everyone's you know very into this space. But I think you know, in, in general, there there's still a long way to go in ramping up the use of some some sort of configuration management tool. Um, but the the benefits that you get from it are, are just so tremendous. You know, having that executable documentation that won't get stale. You know, it's not that it's not that inch and a half thick binder that's way out of date by the time, you know, by the time it's sent to the printers. And you know that, that there's new things that have changed and, and been updated over over that time. I think we're just going to see a, con a continued drive in the space, even if and even you know even as you know things like Docker become more popular, because these things don't just manage provisioning. It's configuration drift. It's 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 that it's the and it's the iteration on that environment. It's the changes as things go forward. You know that these tools really address and. So yeah, that's I, I definitely think, uh, and I think the window space is ripe for an explosion in the use of config management tools. It, you know, everywhere I go, um, there is more and more interest in this space. Okay, Matt, I, I think you, um, in one of our early episodes, really kind of hit the nail on the head about where this is taking us to. It, it's taking us away from. Really, and I'm going to totally fail at paraphrasing what you said, but essentially you said you something remember along what I said. I have no idea what you're going to say right now. <laughs> it's going to be. It marks the end of caring about individual machines and really like 
tending to specific devices and boxes and talking about things in terms of those sort of things and it just being something you spin up. It doesn't, you know, you don't care about the actual physical box and where it is and who's touching it because nobody touches it. it you spin up a machine as you need it and because you built your executable documentation, it's going to stand up exactly the way you expect it to. I couldn't agree more with myself. Yep. Uh, so we're going to wrap up with our checkout. I have a Fact Mag Mix uh, 432. It's a Luke Vibert. Um, you're in the dance music. Uh, let's probably check it out. I get to work from home now, so I get to spend a lot of time listening to music. And I listened to this today, and it was very good. A couple of things just that I've been uh, playing with quite a bit uh, recently. Uh, Packer, uh, if you are building those images, uh, it's been awesome because we can basically take our config that we use to build our base images in uh, for Vagrant, uh, and you can do things with VMware and with AWS, and they all kind of stay the same. Uh, Heroku, for the ops folks out there and the dev folks, uh, the ability to just write some code and do a git push and, hey, your app is running, uh, is awesome. And finally, uh, if you are running Puppet code, please, please, please uh, test your code. Uh, Puppet RSpec, or I guess it's RSpec Puppet, and Puppet Lint are amazing tools and will make your code better. So please uh, check those out. All right, so I guess I'm up then. Yes, sir. Uh, yep, sorry, how, many, how, how many can I have? As how many as you want. You how fast <laughs> can you So uh, I've been doing a lot of interviewing lately. Uh, we're, hi we're hiring a bunch of people at SAC, and so uh, I wanted to point out uh, our CEO, Joel Spolsky, had written a book, uh, Smart and Gets Things Done, about uh, interviewing and staffing, and uh, so a lot of good stuff in there about uh, finding and hiring quality people. Uh, a book that's come up a lot recently when I'm talking to both dev and IT um, is uh, Release It. It's an old book. It's been around for a long time by Michael Niggard, um, and it's about designing and deploying production-ready software. Uh, excellent, excellent read. It's been a favorite of mine for a number of years. And uh, as we're moving more towards, uh, you know, infrastructure as code uh, for those ops folks, uh, getting up to speed with what clean code looks like. Uh, clean code by uh, Robert Martin, uh, Uncle Bob, is an excellent read as well. So, oh, and la last but not least, uh, you mentioned containers for Windows. Uh, Microsoft Research has a project out there dr called Drawbridge um, that they've had out and been writing about for like the last six, seven years or so. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, hold your, I, I wouldn't hold your breath, but I bet you some kind of containerization for Windows is on its way. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think it's the third time that Clean Code book's been mentioned on the show. <laughs> I've been on vacation, so I haven't been doing too much. I've been really tech down this vacation. So one thing I saw was somebody put together a little application to graph your TV, your favorite TV show's ratings from IMDb. It's interesting because you can see the trend lines for how your shows have progressed through the years and the seasons. It's neat. I'll put the links in the show notes. Also playing a lot of board games. I, I got Monty Python Flux. It's a wonderful variant of Flux. Um, it involves singing Monty Python songs and talking in outrageous accents. Um, can't go wrong. And I also picked up the uh, Star Trek Feder Star Trek Catan Federation Space Expansion, which really bring some different mechanics to the Catan game. Nice. Okay, so I'll wrap up. Uh, one that I am putting as a checkout, and it's not because of our guests being on this episode, but I would have thrown it up anyway, is a pretty awesome podcast that I've recently discovered called Ops All the Things. Um, and that just might be hosted by, I don't know, uh, Steve Morawski and Chris Weber. So it's it's off to a pretty good start. Uh Chris mentioned uh, when we were green rooming earlier that because they're ops guys, <laughs> their publishing schedule sometimes is a little challenging. And unrelated, or at least as far as I know unrelated, you guys can tell me, is there's a documentary uh, which is available on Netflix uh, called Bronies, which is about uh, adults, both male and female, uh, people who enjoy the new uh, My Little Pony television show. 
it's a really interesting documentary. Um, I watch the show. I watch it with my kids sometimes and sometimes with my flatmate. Uh, <laughs> but the documentary really kind of was eye-opening. It's really entertaining in the way it's put together. That's called Bronies. It's on Netflix. I want to thank our amazing panel, uh, Sean O'Mara, uh, Chris Weber, and Stephen Rowski. Thanks for joining us. Uh, everybody, please feel free to check us out, or please check us out at ArrestedDevOps.com. You can follow us at ArrestedDevOps on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook. If you use Google+, you can hunt us down over there. Uh, I'm Matt at Matt Stratton on Twitter. And I'm Trevor at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter. We're Arrested DevOps, and remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand. Thank you.